0: Poetry. everything poetry is not a luxury it's a vital necessity of our existence it forms the quality of the light within which we predicate our hopes and dreams towards survival and change first made into language then into idea and then into more tangible action Audrey Lord this is poetry what is it good for with me in our discussion with the best poets alive today is my bcr bar crawl radio co-host rebecca mccain and actor translator carpenter lover of peace and poet chris Brandt.
1: hi i'm chris Brandt, and this is poetry what is it good for on bar crawl radio this podcast brings together two poets who have something in common read and talk about their work, and today we're considering how word, image, and mass interact with the creative
0: artist. Thank you, Chris. I'm Alan Winson, and our other co-host, Rebecca McKean, is with us, and I'd like to introduce our guests today. Rick Mullen's poetry has been published in many journals and anthologies, including The Dark Horse, American Arts Quarterly, The New Criterion, and Rabbit Ears TV Poems. His collection, Lullaby and Wheel, was published in 2019 by Kelsey Books. When he was in his mid-30s, Rick visited the Los Angeles County Museum of Art and encountered paintings of Matisse, Brock, and other Fauve artists that changed his life, and he began to paint. Later, he became fascinated with the painter Shaim Soutine and wrote a biography of Soutine in poetry form. Thank you, Rick, for joining us.
2: And sculptor Meredith Bergen creates public monuments exploring issues of history, social justice, race, human rights, disabilities, and the power of poetry and music. Bergman's work is well known in New York City for her FDR Hope Memorial on Roosevelt Island, unveiled in 2019. The September 11th Memorial in the Cathedral of St. John of the Divine in 2012, and most recently. The Women's Rights Pioneer's Monument in Central Park. Meredith Bergman is also an accomplished poet and poetry critic. Her writing has appeared in Contemporary Poetry, Hudson Review, The New Criterion, and she was poetry editor of the American Arts Quarterly from 2006 to 2017 and you are selling your house and moving to Boston to be closer to your family. So thank you twice for taking the time to join us.
1: Uh, Hasn't this man got the best beard? He does. <laughs> uh,
3: he's
1: been working on
3: it for years. Oh,
0: that's good. It's a, <laughs> po- it's, it's a poet's beard.
3: Right. Let's begin
1: by talking about your other artistic work. How did you first discover that? which came first? the visual art or the poetry?
3: Actually I began in elementary school doing both and and many other things singing and acting and I knew I wanted to be some kind of artist but I wasn't sure which and the art kind of took over but I didn't discover sculpture until I was almost through art school and had kind of despaired of video and calligraphy and painting and conceptual art and stumbled into the bronze foundry and started making things that could last for thousands of years and I was completely hooked. And the poetry was something that I was always doing kind of on the side. But in 2003, I signed up for courses at the 92nd Street Y and began to study formal poetry and read poetry again and ended up being a poetry editor for 11 years and really took it to heart and worked at it. Well,
1: we'll come back to the formal poetry because we do want to talk about that. But uh, Alan asked a very interesting question. How would you describe your work to a blind
4: person or would you? Well, um, it's quite a challenge. At work, I'm a journalist and at work I've got to actually write uh, for the blind a description of uh, any art element that I submit uh, for an article. And uh, if I give it any real thought, it's it's a difficult thing to do.
0: When you describe it, you could just describe just objectively what it looks like and the colors if a blind person has an experience of color. Uh, But it it must be difficult. Like, for instance, the picture that you uh, have of the Chelsea sitting room and the Chelsea Mm -hmm. hotel, uh, you could describe the objects in the room but how could you describe that granular three-dimensional slaving on of the paint and the colors and a lot right. of the are or- the burnt oranges that you throw in how do you get that across do you talk about it graphically or do you talk about it emotionally
4: i mean, i suppose if i were actually um beginning i would have to i would have to give you know to the objective uh, <laughs> yeah uh, hooks to it. There, there is a man sitting in a hotel room. Um, he seems to be doing something creative, maybe writing, maybe drawing. And he's sitting next to a fireplace that has in front of it a reflective um, coffee table with flowers on it. You can see the reflection on the flower. The um, There's also a another human element in there in that there's a bust on the mantle um, behind the bust is um a bas relief of the seasons i believe it is over the fireplace there are other art elements and then i would talk a bit about how the image makes me feel and maybe why i did it um I'm, i would probably get into the color it would be almost an entirely an aside how the paint was put on
0: <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's oh, it's, little, it's <laughs> like
4: one of those technical things that that i'm not as interested in but i i i will say that people, when they see my art, you know, seem to go to that that sort of tactile immediacy almost, you know, immediately. And um, I, I, I I suppose I would get into that too. But I guess I would just try to set the table and then, you know, let the person eat or get up and
1: leave. <laughs> yeah. And for, for uh, Meredith, of course, it would be a lot easier. She could just lead somebody to the statue or the monument sure. and let them feel it.
3: Well, I would I would urge people to, to touch the surfaces of Rick's paintings. And in some cases you might even be able to follow some of the imagery from how the paint is bent around the forms. Um, I actually did make art for the blind long ago for the Alabama Institute for Deaf and Blind for kids. And I made bas-reliefs that they could handle and touch. And they were on the theme of the senses So the one that illustrated Touch had a mother embracing a son, and their hands were life-size and over each other, and you could actually hold their hands. And the background was all a kind of a pattern of thumbprints, so you could almost feel my fingerprints in it as well. Um, But basically, people can handle my sculptures, and they can handle and feel the space between them and among them which is also very important, you know, within a gesture or between figures.
0: When I was out there at the Women's Rights Pioneers Monument, uh, we recently put into Central Park, that um, represents uh, Sojourner Truth, Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And I went out there to get some audio about uh, what people were thinking about th- this new statue was put out there, not even, not even a year yet. And there was a little girl that asked... Um, her, uh, her parents said, can I go climb on it? And it's really behind <laughs> a fence and up high. It'd be difficult to get up to it. But uh, would you encourage her to climb on it?
3: Sure. My Women's Memorial in Boston, which has been up for 20 years, is at ground level and the sculptures are fully accessible and people climb on them and get photographed with them. And there's been very, very little minor damage over those years. Well, I it was really kind of heartbreaking that in Central Park it had to be behind that fence and well, up that high.
0: Right, yeah. which is how all the other statues are are done. And I noticed it was put across from this uh very old looking man and I don't even remember who it was I said I'm gonna remember who it is and I couldn't remember who it was.
3: It's Green Halleck.
0: Yeah and who is okay. that?
3: A satirical poet who was enormously popular in his day, I and wonder, nobody reads them
0: now. Yeah, I wonder if they talk to each other at night, you know, the, <laughs> the three women in Halleck, if they have conversations. But um, I did collect some sound, I'd like to play that sound now of the people, what they thought about your statue um, as they're walking through Central Park on a very windy, sun, sunny day.
2: Well, it's the first time I'm seeing it and I'm, I'm loving it so far. Fight for women to, uh, you know, have the right to vote you know, and to other things, you know? I mean, it's just a fantastic long overdue. I think, uh, you know, we need more women's statues in the park. <laughs> Janine, and I'm from New York City. Um, it's, it represents just like the women's, right? movement and all that stuff, like, it represents like a lot of women.
3: I, I like it and I think it belongs here. That's all I can say. It fits in with everything else in here. So I think they deserve a place here.
1: And
2: I love to see Sojourner Truth, because she doesn't get any
3: press. That's very special to me, very special. You've done a good job. My husband was a sculptor, and he would really have appreciated your work, Meredith. It's, be- it's beautifully done. Thank you. Tom McAnulty, he's, he died. I find it very moving and very beautiful. I like that it's white women and a black and black together working on something among each other. Most of the statuary in this park is of men, 19th century men, you know, most of whom we've never heard of. And uh, this is literary walk and it's really great to see women portrayed. I think it's great. I think it's, I read about it, and I saw it when it was put up. It was put up in, um, I think, in the fall. And um, I think it's beautiful.
2: I read all about it, and then I saw it, and I think it represented. 800 rep- years ago, when I was a kid, I did a school report on Susan B. Anthony. I did,
3: too. I can't and believe
2: it. you did? I did Susan when, B. Anthony. Anna and I had Santa. to dress up. I don't know what the heck. Really? Could have won when I was... Uh, Ten years old, and I remember I, I knew everything about Susan B. Anthony. And right now, I don't know if I could tell you two things. Look the bags. Look at the poppies over there. I'm telling it's, it's I only great. see Susan B. Anthony. Others I don't see because bringing me back 800 years ago. What were you thinking? What were you thinking? I just think it's beautiful.
3: What would I? What would I ask him? Why? Why it took her so long to do this, De, Blasi- De Blasio? De Blasio. <laughs> right, he was here when they f- unveiled
2: it. Yeah, yeah right. I, yeah, yeah, I live around here, so I know. But I love it. But this is my friend, and we're friends forever. And she came into Long I Came in from Long Island. And I said we can't go until we
3: see the statue. I think it's a.
1: It's um. It's a nice gesture what i'm curious about is that they decided to put sojourner truth susan b anthony and elizabeth caddy stanton together when susan b anthony and elizabeth caddy stanton didn't support um they didn't support women's rights for african-american women what was the thought behind putting these three particular women together my name is bridget um i live in the bronx
0: so Bridget from Boston was a little um, bothered Bronx. by the st- Bridget from the Bronx, right, was bothered by your statue. Uh, and I wonder if you can comment on her question of why you put these three women together, one black woman, two white women.
3: Well, they did work together. They knew each other. Sojourner Truth was 20 years older than Susan B. Anthony, but they spoke at the same abolitionist meetings, women's rights conventions. Truth was an overnight house guest of Stanton's, and they worked together to increase social justice. They knew each other, they corresponded. And the image I wanted to create was of women, very diverse women, because Stanton and Anthony were also very different from each other. Diverse women working together, that social change isn't accomplished by one great man or woman it's really a group effort and it's ongoing and it's unfinished and hopefully to inspire people to
0: sit down together kind of they, they don't see the bigger picture and so i well, like to talk about that there's also a huge
3: that. gap between the idealism and the pragmatic because these abolitionists wanted to free the slaves but they didn't necessarily want to live with them or go to school with them or <laughs> uh-huh. marry yeah. Or have it their sisters the marry
1: one. Yeah. yeah,
3: so they That's... wanted to erase the crime, but then they had no idea of how to build a progressive society, and they balked a lot of them.
0: And we're still working on that.
3: Yes, we are.
0: We're still working on, yeah. that, on, on that question. Rick, um, we have started to talk about your other art, meaning your painting art. I think it's an interesting story about how you were inspired at the age of mid-30s to start painting. You hadn't painted before then. Could you talk about that? How, how that began? Yeah, um,
4: it was my soul of Tarsus moment, basically. I was on a business trip in Los Angeles. It can be a very boring place if you don't have a car. And I had a Saturday to kill time. And I was basically your average educated person in terms of an interest in going to art museums. But it seemed like the Los Angeles County Art Museum would be a good place to go. And there was something about something called the fauve landscape um, and i recognized the name matisse so i said okay a little time there and i walked into uh, the gallery and um, i had to leave within seconds because i was just overwhelmed by the, the by the color the just the orchestration of these fauve paintings and the fauves were a group early 20th century who um it's one of those groups that got their name from what was meant to be an insult in the press, like Impressionism. Uh Favre is a wild beast. Um the Fauves included Matisse Picasso was a fauve painter. Um Matisse Braque, um, uh Duran, many, many of the painters that I came to really love. And it was to me, my my, my my point of reference at the time was strictly Van Gogh, that, that that you got here from Van Gogh. And to some extent that that was correct. But I went home from that trip and I started buying inexcusable amounts of, of paint and turned this garret up in my you know top floor, of this little house we owned at the time into my studio. And I, I just never turned back. I, I started, you know, it's, it's really, um, it changed my life, um, excluding any personal relationships I had <laughs> more than anything that has ever happened. And I think I always wanted to paint. I was on the back of my head. I wanted to try that. Uh, but I was just inspired it isn't even the word. I was just um, uh, completely possessed <laughs> by it and, and, and immediately immersed myself in other museums and teaching myself to paint and teaching myself about art. And I consider myself uh, self-taught, though for years I would take a one night a week class at the Art Students League, and very importantly, have met artists, You know, two in particular, um, Paul Weingarten and Andre Tamarchenko, who I've spent time with and I consider mentors. I carefully put together a course of, of study uniquely catered to what I wanted to do
2: to also talk about how the work of being a poet might impact your work as a painter or a sculptor. So um, so let's look at a form of poetry that links your two arts. You both write exfratic poetry. Um, that is poems about works of art. Rick, in 2013, you wrote a biography in poetic form of the painter Shyam Sutin. Tell us a bit about this artist and, and what drew you to his, his work and his life.
4: Constantine is a painter's painter. Talk about thick paint. (laughs) (laughs) Constantine was a fascinating painter. One of the really truly great painters and most people have never heard of him and and, and it's almost troubling to think of why. And one of the reasons is that he doesn't fit into any of the categories that we became so obsessed with in the 20th century. He wasn't a cubist, he wasn't, you know. If anything what he did was he brought Rembrandt, um, Courbet, uh, many uh, of the masters, into a 20th century idiom. At the same time, he was bringing his own tradition. He was born in the shtetl in um, Belarus and uh, was in a very lived in a very poor situation. He was like the, one of the poorest families in the shtetl. Long story short, he got he, he got out, got to Paris. He ended up meeting Amadeo Modigliani, and they were roommates and, and best of friends. One of the best ways to sort of describe him, other than the painting, is that He was in Paris, and his French probably sounded like Chico Marx's English. (laughs) He he was probably in a world uh, unto himself in so many ways. Living in in the gutter, (laughs) basically in Paris, you know, he had a dealer, and they, they were just killing each other until Albert Barnes of the Barnes Foundation in Pennsylvania came and and saw his art actually Barnes had sent a scout William Glackens who's an American painter and Glackens said he should check this C teen out and he bought everything he could Barnes Um, and from that day on C. teen wore a suit and tie and essentially said goodbye to a lot of his old friends had a lot of success internationally actually Um, he was Jewish and he died in a roundabout way uh, as a result of the, um, you know, the Nazi takeover of Paris. Basically, he died in a hospital because he was on the run and didn't get to the hospital. One of my favorite stories about, one last anecdote in this regard, there were collectors in Chicago that recognized his peril and they were ready to take him, move him to Chicago. And his response to them, um, paraphrased, was I can't go there, you don't have any trees. Surely what he meant was you just don't have the the trees that speak to me, you know. He painted landscapes, he painted portraits and he painted still lifes, essentially. He's and, a and very he, traditional painter.
0: And he painted carcasses too, didn't he?
4: Yes, that, that would be in the still life category.
0: Yeah,
4: <laughs> he, he, very uh, still. Had a, he had an entire cow, <laughs> an entire carcass That's brought some nice. to his apartment and he painted it until the police came. And a wonderful uh, story that when the police came, he explained, you know, they were probably about to arrest him. He said, but I'm an artist. And essentially, said, oh, we see. Uh, try using formaldehyde. And they let him do it for another day or two. But by the time he was done, oh, painted 10 monumental paintings of a, a carcass of beef that were quite an inspiration to the abstract expressionists.
2: Could you read a piece of uh, your long poem on Soutine?
4: This is a section in which... He is in his room. It's way before he was discovered by Barnes. He's in his room with Modigliani and with other painters that came with with him um, from from Eastern Europe and a a famous Japanese painter that lived there as well. Um, So this is um, book two, chapter two of Soutine. It's called The Hive. Hold still a minute now and stop your screaming. Fujita's tweezers poke the fleshy molding of a dirty ear. Modigliani's seeming nonchalance belies his effort, holding the tormented Belarus against a mattress in this battle scene unfolding. Kaim screams, I'll go insane. His friends, exhausted, watch the Japanese maneuver cautiously until the shrieking ends with the extraction of a roach. Whoever says Soutine keeps to himself should try to sleep next door. Cremaine, a bit hungover, groans on leaving. The fear in Kaim's eyes subsides in increments as Modigliani breaks his wrestler's hold and lets him lie across the elevated pallet, an uncanny rig the two assemble every night between the rusted vats of paraffin they situate to block the bugs that bite and now we must say burrow as Kaim is sleeping. Fujita watches quietly, despite the shock of having just removed a creeping insect from this fellow's ear. Sutin, I wonder if this monster is worth keeping. He drops it in an empty turpentine container. It looks a little like a lobster, huh? Still life in a tin tureen. Kaim does his best through broken sobs to thank Fujita. Modigliani calms his friend. Fujita... You have stopped a genius falling from the edge, and bomb the bug. We shall, Monsieur. You owe me, Modi. Yes. Good night, Fujita-san. Shalom.
0: Thank you. Very nice. Terrific. And it and it, this you. is a, a book. Uh, what? Give us the title of the book. Soutine. Sutin. I thought there was another part to it.
4: Oh, it's Sutin, a poem.
0: Thank you. Thank you.
2: Meredith, could you read one of your poems that can help us to understand something about the sculptor's art? Maybe something from The
3: Crouching Venus? This is a poem about a sculpture that I saw in the Louvre that exists in many versions. It's a Roman copy of a Greek sculpture of Aphrodite kneeling by her bath, or The Crouching Venus. And this one was a little different. The Crouching Venus... The history of art is full of pain, sometimes within the work, sometimes inflicted on the body of the work itself by acts of god or vandals, acid rain or fashion. Later versions have rejected seven of her belly's folds and creases, smoothed her girth, sucked out her attribute as goddess of inevitable birth, and left her slim, alone. Here, missing pieces are not missed. Coy arms that convolute, her curly head may sit upon a shelf. But on her back, as if to budge the earth, a tiny hand is still attached. I'm wild with sudden grief. I have to find that child.
0: That wow. is an amazing piece yes. of word, word putting together. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had to go and look at the, that Venus with the hand on the back. And there are a lot of versions of it. And that hand certainly elicits what, what's missing, what's, what's there. Yeah, um, I, I teach film, and I wanted to ask you this. I, I, I uh, deal with a filmmaker named Chris Marker, who deals with time and how time changes things. And he has a piece called Junktopia about how art changes over time. You've already kind of talked about how your art changes over time by people just handling it, touching certain parts of it. What, what, what does that mean to the artist to see that people have engaged, not with just their eyes, but with their hands and bodies and changed it?
3: Well, it's very significant for me because I, although I do work that sits on a pedestal or in a house, mainly what I do are public art projects, monuments, memorials, um, outdoor sculptures. And I really love seeing people take ownership of them and dress them up and uh, leave stickers on them and relate to them and cite them in other ways with posting photos of them. It's, It's clear that it becomes. Something almost alive for other people, and that brings me great joy. It's
1: what we wish they would do with our poems, too.
3: Oh, that that happens. Yes, that's what we all <laughs> wish for. Sure, um, Rick, you
1: you have quoted Duke Ellington saying you've got to find some way of doing it without of saying it without saying it. Now both of you say it, whatever it is, in two different arts. Well, three, but two for each of you. And how, do, you, how does, do the two arts amplify or infect or impact each other? Or maybe another way to say it is, can we hear the sculpture and the painter in your poems? Can we see the poetry in the sculpture or the painting?
3: Well, I can answer. I started writing poetry uh, to deal with grief because my son had been diagnosed with autism. He's an only child and he was three years old. And it was truly terrible to see an apparently normal child descend into this really troubling state of losing the ability to speak, losing control over himself. And I felt so much grief that I thought perhaps I was even dredging up old grief to feel it over again, and I wanted to sort it out. So I started trying to sort it in poetry and the poems were like artworks in the sense that if I wrote a poem, if I wrote a sonnet, if I wrote in a form, I would know when it was ended. I would know when I was finished. And it would become a made thing with a kind of concrete form. Whereas if I just vented, I could go on and on. And I, I didn't want to do that. I really wanted to, to learn from the form and almost be prevented from venting, but led to other ideas and and new ideas. And I began to have fun writing and that's really how I became a poet.
1: Uh, Well, you've you've just answered one of my questions that that I'm with, with reading your poetry, both of you, and you're both very dedicated to poetic forms. You rhyme in, on all sorts of traditional and invented patterns. You take on some of the classic and really difficult forms, from both kinds of sonnet to villanelles and even sestinas and Dante's terza rima. We should mention that Soutine is entirely written in terza rima, which is not an easy thing to do, and um, it's also
4: very unpopular. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, but, yeah, there, there's 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 something Meredith just just said it um there, there, there's something very important called um i call it the paradox of constraint where um what you do is you take your you know paradoxically you take your brain out of it by giving yourself something which i wouldn't want to compare it to a puzzle um but things such as meter thinking where you, where you have to be conscious of these things what you're doing is you're, you're no longer giving yourself um, a blank piece of paper on which, you know, you, Mr. Know-It-All are gonna tell you, tell, tell what he thinks. You're, not, you're, you're, you're kept from going where, where you know, the, the mind easily goes or the, or the mind wants to go. It's gonna wanna go there, but it's gonna to have to go through a bunch of stage gates as they call it in the business world uh, to get there. And by the time you're done, You've gone someplace in many uh, instances, in most instances, you've gone to a place that you hadn't set out to go or to go through to get to where you were going. But very often you pull something out of yourself that um, it's questionable that you would ever get to, you know, it's like, if you sit down to draw a duck, you're probably going to draw a duck. Um, But if you are, you know, committed to certain constraints, you might find out that you have a beautiful sailboat and you can always go back and do the duck.
0: You know, you, you, you three are poets, Chris, Meredith, and Rick. Becky and I are, are not poets. We're human beings though, and we've gone through grief too. I think if you live long enough, you go, you go through grief. You've found what I'm hearing is form as a way to allow you to address that grief or approach it or live with it. Is there, how do people who are not poets do that? How do we live with our grief if we're not a poet?
2: We read poetry.
0: We read poetry. So that's, <laughs> yes. that's what poetry is good for. huh?
3: Yeah. We, we also suffer from the need to make things. That's what happened to Rick when he allowed himself to start painting and studying painting. And I've always had that. I have to be working on something or making something or thinking about making something. It's I'm compelled to. And... So that is my way of dealing with things, of staying sane
4: that's what makes us human, I think you know forget about the opposable thumb, you know it's imagination and it's creativity. I mean there are animals that will make useful items. I don't think any of them make a picture you know uh, they're, 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 it's, it's an essential human element which I guess you can simplify into a notion of having, get, having it beaten out of us you know, as we get older that children um have to create. They've got to innovate because they don't even have language yet, um, and they they are, have language imposed upon them, <laughs> or they become innovative enough to realize that if I can learn this language, I can talk to my mother. Um, but you know, it's 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 really, um, as Meredith said, it's a need to create. I mean, I don't think of poetry as something I I, I went to, in my case, um, to deal with grief. Um, it's just a, 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 a compulsion to express what i see with the understanding that you may or may not accept that or you may see in what i present you something different it's it's communication uh, and and, and it's a very human element
3: and the creation of meaning of taking i mean i'm not really driven by grief now uh life has changed and i'm more trying to enjoy make sense of interpret experiences and events in in this made way. You are
2: listening to Poetry, What Is It Good For? produced by Bar Crawl Radio Podcast. And we are talking with sculptor Meredith Bergman and painter Rick Mullen. Both are also accomplished poets. And we'll be right back.
0: The the idea um, that always surprised me of any any artist whether they're a novelist or a poet or a sculptor or a painter or whatever is the sort of fearlessness that i that I find in or I see in people who are artists who are able to reveal that which I would never ever talk about and you all can and Meredith you started talking about your son and and, and the, the issues, and you've written about that. And, and um, Rick, I know you've written about your father and your mother um, in, in ways that is very revelatory about your deep, deepest feelings. And I think rather than maybe talking about that, can we hear a poem?
4: Um, I'll, I'll read the one about my father that I showed you. Dick. My father was a Nixon man though somewhat left of all his friends. A moderate Republican with rigid ways and means and ends. An expert hand at tying knots, the firm ones and the ones that slip. He had no luck in drawing lots. His Chrysler was a battleship. He was a nightmare with a gun and nowhere when it came to plumbing. Hanged himself in 81. My mother never saw it coming.
1: Okay, there's, there's an, an example of what you referred to earlier as uh, the paradox of constraint. Uh, clearly, a the death of a father, particularly by suicide, is an, an enormous event in someone's life, and in that poem you don't try to tell us how enormous it was uh it, it's clear that it was enormous but you don't you don't say i was so sad or i was break broken up or i had a traumatic experience you just tell the
4: facts and let us discover it That's well it's it's of- it's an example of the ellington principle to some extent <laughs> without saying it and you know i, I don't like to impose my reading on a poem. Um, But I employ some humor in there. Like it's sort of building up to really kind of humorous anecdotes about one's father. And then you hit this very serious line. uh, And when the narrator says, my mother never saw it coming, well, either did the narrator. Um, And every line before it, is the kind of thing you think about afterward that say maybe i should have seen that he was really this unhappy you know and that that's what i hope gets across i'm not sure that any buddy reads any poem with exactly what we intend you've got to let your intent go when a poem or sculpture or a painting goes out there because it becomes the world and a discussion between you and 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 and, and the world um but that's that's where the um, and it very much was the form that 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 got me into that setup and and the compression that that that's going on there
0: I would love you to read gravity too, which which you paired uh, with this poem when you sent it to us.
4: Okay, this is the one that makes me an orphan uh, nearly forty years later. you know when you go to when, I, when, I, when people read it readings. I used to hate when, I, when, they, when they would talk at all. I just want them to read the poem. But then I learned that it's very hard to hit people cold with um, a poem that's lonely here at once. So I'll just say to set this up, this was um, a poem that came from visiting my mother um, a year, maybe a year and a half before she died and realizing what's sort of going on in the poem. Gravity. My mother made inert by weight and knee Spends waking hours watching her TV. The laptop she obtained on TV, the laptop she obtained on QVC lies dark and out of reach. For, can I start it over again? Sure. Since we're, of, of, <laughs> course, of course, of course. All right. I'm going to read a long one later. I'll do it about six or seven times. Gravity. My mother made inert by weight and knee, spends waking hours watching her TV. The laptop she obtained on QVC lies dark and out of reach, predictably. We call, but all her calls are transferred straight to voicemail. She doesn't read, she stays up late. The only stimulant she has to compensate for everything she's blocked is solid state illumination, decorative notions, side effect disclaimers, jewelry promotions. Her dreams must bear a weight of lost emotions. She sleeps, and when she wakes, she thinks of oceans. She lies in bed and tries to name them all, but summer seas, perhaps. She can't recall she thinks about the tides that rise and fall she'd like a globe she tells me something small
1: what you do with with that globe at the end of that poem that carries so much weight and yet it's just
4: that little thing yeah this is exactly what she told me it was the most beautiful thing my mother ever said to me you know and it was like she said, you know, you know, I can't believe it, Ricky. She we call me Ricky. When I wake up, I think of oceans for some <laughs> reason. <Really? laughs> and, then, and then she said, I can't remember. Are they, are they seas or oceans? You know, I'd like a globe. Something just a small globe. Gee, <laughs> 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 hey, this is easier than I thought. She's <laughs> you know, talking. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but it was, uh, you know, it was, she was in a place where um, enormity was, was coming to her, you know. And
1: that's how it spoke. Well, but you you hear so much more. I mean, um, one in one of Meredith's poems, she has an epigraph from from James Merrill that just dot dot dot. If hearing and listening were the same, and we often hear without we, we often listen without hearing, um, but you clearly heard much
4: more than your mother was saying. That. We- it's deeply moving um, to hear her say anything like that. I mean, my mother was not somebody who spoke in anything other than the most direct communication. She was not philosophical in any way. Um, and I don't think she knew she was being so here. And it was almost as if she was just sort of reassociating. Um, I mean, she was, you know, with it, as they say, to the end. Um, but she was just puzzled by why this was happening to her and kind of in, amazed at it and open to it, you know? I don't think she interpreted it, but she wanted me to know about it. And she wrapped it up with asking for a little globe.
0: Chris, you make you make a point about the rhyme scheme of this poem. And I wonder if you could uh, uh, talk about that.
1: Well, yeah, I'm noticing, of course, you, you rhyme a lot. And some of your rhymes are just worthy of Cole Porter. Uh, I'm thinking particularly of, of in, for Rick, sirens and environs and museum and seum and, uh, and, and Meredith has insistence and in some distance, things like that.
0: I like emotions and oceans.
1: Emotions and oceans, yeah. They're, they're wonderful. What does rhyme do? Because a lot of my students uh, think that you have to rhyme in order to make it a poem. Um, and which has been, I think, so, uh, intensified by the popularity of hip hop, which does practically nothing but rhyme. What is what is the function of rhyme since it's not something that uh, it, it doesn't. Con- well, it does constrain you. You have to find a rhyme for the rhyme. Um, but what does it does do for the poetry?
3: I think it gets into your brain in a different way, in an unexpected way, kind of like music, because it is musical. It's, it's a sound that repeats, and then it's a total surprise if it's a good rhyme. So you're pleased, and then you're a little shocked. You know, something happens neurologically. It's just wonderful.
4: Uh, it's it, it, it a way to um, enhance meaning, to um, add meaning, yeah, Hip hop and, and rap are, are wonderful because of what they do with rhyme. I think my favorite rhyme is in a song by Black Blackalicious called Paragraph President. At the end of like a very long run of intricate rhyming, this is what I consider like nearly a perfect rhyme. It is had enough amateurs, they rhyme enough in amateurs. <laughs> in in the delivery and it's you know it's a slant rhyme they pronounce both words correctly and it's a rhyme because of the context of the rest of it Uh, as you know which brings in the fact that that most of my rhymes are more or less on the nose um but there there are slant rhymes um there are um internal rhymes as well as end rhymes and also the important thing about rhyme is that you know when you read a poem you shouldn't end stop your reading i don't think that's a mistake a lot of people make. And it, that's it, what
0: define end stop, please.
4: Pause at the end of each line. It's the end of the line, especially if it's rhyming and hit the rhymes too hard. If you read uh, the poem according to the normal punctuation if, as if it were prose, you know the, the rhymes come in, in, in a rhythm <laughs> as opposed to in a situation like the end of the line. And the better you get at rhyme, the less um, intrusive it is because it can be very intrusive and, and annoying. I'm heartened, in, a, in fact, though, to hear that your students think they have to run because for about <laughs> years, it was prohibited. Same with painting. Um, Andrei Tamarchenko, who I mentioned, um, great painter, he quit art school because in the 70s, he weren't allowed to, to paint representational painting. I was, you know? I was
3: told I didn't have to study anatomy. I wanted <laughs> to make people who look like they could stand up.
4: Oh, you don't have to study anatomy. That was it's gotten anatomy. much worse. It's gotten much worse. Uh, Andre and Paul and I were exhibiting at an art school in Philadelphia. I think it was called the Philadelphia Art Students League. It was on Chestnut Street, and the students were coming in. And they said, "Wow, it must be cool to paint." It's like, wait, wait a minute, you're at art school. Now we work on computers, <laughs> you know. And um, just last week, the magazine I, I, I work at, I submitted an idea for a cover. I so wanted to be drawn and they came back with a beautiful cover but I I shouldn't have been surprised that it was really crafted on a computer you know it's 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 really (laughs) gone gone so sort of far away from that human touch in, in, in
0: things Meredith we've not heard a poem from you in a in a while I love his master's voice of the poems that I know of yours Oh, I'd love to read that. Okay, Because great. that is about, about music, <laughs> among other things. Right, yes.
3: Um, and it does have an epigraph from James Merrill's poem, The Victor Dog, which is a wonderful poem about the RCA Victor logo dog. Uh,
0: now, many of, your, many of our hip-hop listeners in, on, on Poetry, is good for, and we have many, don't know about the, the Victor dog, the victory dog. Could you describe it for us?
3: Well, RCA Victor's logo used to be an old-fashioned gramophone with a big brass horn and a little white dog, uh, maybe a Jack Russell Terrier, sitting and looking at fixedly into the horn, listening to what was coming out. And it said below, I think in quotations, his master's voice. And that was their, their logo for, for decades. So that is the title of my poem, His Master's Voice. A dog is listening to the dead. His master's brother played his master's voice from a wax recording. The dog sat down and all but stuck his head into the trumpet of the afterlife. His master's brother painted them, setting the eager ashen dog, the gleaming brass machine, against dark velvet and mahogany. They float on black on my computer screen. Is there no comfort in the past? The dog is listening for commands, his name or for approval, something to make his pose make sense at last, his master trying to play Beethoven. Hearing her practice for Lisa, my mother-in-law's teacher in Vienna told her then, you sound like you have never been in love. She thinks she was 11, maybe 10. I fell in love when I was five bewildering my mother you can't be I think she said she silenced me his voice his laugh survive in jumbled fragments that are hard to play and now I find his name online there's video a dog cavorting with a tall slim man my childhood love the master of that dog his voice is wrong the rhythm doesn't scan the dog begins to bark for joy then loud and close a chuckle from the unseen cameraman i recognize the timbre of that boy when he says finally with pride good girl that's all i ever longed to hear now put the screen to sleep Put for Eliza on instead, the soothing trills, the octaves in the bass, insistent like pronouncements of the dead.
0: Thank you.
1: That that is, a, really a lovely poem.
3: Thank you. I had fun with that. Took me months. But
1: <laughs> yeah. Do 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 poems for you guys ever come? So I have poems that I've worked on for 10 years and they're not done. Uh, once in a while, I get one that just flows. Do you have that
4: experience as well?
3: Once in a while.
4: Those are good ones. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the best. Yeah.
0: Like anything that's living in a poem that's living, it stays with you and it kind of resonates and rings around in your head a while there's so much there and i guess it's all right that i don't entirely settle on anything right now yes
3: Mm -hmm. absolutely that that it's a it's a somewhat scattered poem because it jumps from the dead artist and the dead brother to me and my past my mother-in-law's childhood you know it it jumps around a lot
1: and also you, you know don't we uh, want to just let poems
4: sit there for a while. Uh, once we've read them. And read them again, you know, read them again. Yeah. yeah. That's the important part. That is a tough thing about going to poetry readings, because you do, as I mentioned, you you'll hear the poem once. And um, sometimes the best experience is just the sound of the poem. That's where the rhyme and the meter come in. Um, but you know, I mean, all the nuances in that, in, in Meredith's poem are splendid and um that's a poem you go back and you read right after you're done reading it um and and you come back to it later um and you're right it it's it does what a good good poem does and that is that it leaves a token you know it leaves something there and um and and you remember it it's memorable
0: we always end these shows with one poet reading the other poet's poem
3: shall i go first it's shorter yeah Okay, this is from Rick's book, Coelacanth, and the title is In the Killer's Studio. More penitent than painter, he advanced through serial catastrophes, a knife held somehow in the hand that held the brush. An hour's work was just as often lanced as was the moment's stroke, the picture rife with bleeding undertones an oil gush of venal violet seeping into black. He stalked the image like a madman, like a sulfur breathing monster on the heath. On seeing what he'd done, on stepping back against the table, he would curse and strike with color at the colors underneath. The world beyond the canvas edge went dark. In fact, the canvas held the universe Inside a cave of earthy ochre crust and rags and crumpled tubes, a stark environment, a crime scene in reverse, a hedge against the darkness and the dust. Wow, that's
4: gorgeous.
0: Rick, did she she read that well or what?
4: Yeah, really. Yes. (laughs) It's it's great to hear somebody else read her poem Mm. because it doesn't happen that often.
0: You know, earlier, earlier we asked about what would you say to a blind person about what your, po- what your painting looks like? And I think that poem describes a lot of what you do in your painting. Does it?
2: That said a lot, yes. <laughs>
3: no? <laughs>
2: did we misinterpret
3: it? All right, all right, all right.
0: You said I could get it, ter- get it entirely wrong, and so maybe I did. So
4: no, Rick, no, no! You got it right, but it is—it is, you know—that it is that on the edge kind of um, do or die sort of thing when you're
3: without the homicidal in- intent.
4: Hope. <laughs> <laughs> you get into metaphors like like a ton of bricks sometimes.
0: Rick, something from Meredith.
4: Okay, I'm going to read a poem that I just love. Um, I I like this poem, um, and it's a very Meredith poem. <laughs> um, it's it's about a sculptor but it's it's about what we've been talking about, and it's very topical, um, as you'll see. Downfall. For centuries, we've melted down our heroes for cannon. Careful work from expert hands, attempts to make the human form undying, recast as hollow tubes to shatter bodies. The statues we're now pulling down are hollow, The bronze is just a skin portraying skin, a sculpture's spirit bottled up inside. Sometimes the casting captures fingerprints. I hear them topple and I watch the dust, the wisp that rises from the crumpled pelt. Somewhere I read of Henry Schrady dying, still begging his assistance, keep it wet tormented by the work he could not finish. He must have meant his Lee, his Grant, was cast. He died two weeks before Grant was unveiled, a victim of the strain of that commission, which took him 20 years and took his life. And yet he'd taken on portraying Lee, turned down a command of Union soldiers when David French was unavailable. Another sculptor came to finish Lee, but found the clay had dried and deeply cracked and all of Schrady's care was good for nothing. It's strange that Grant's last word was water. Lee supposedly were, strike the tent. He may have had aphasia and said nothing last. Some sponsors want a symbol, not a life. But sculptors love a complicated man, and Schrady's generals were not generic. Which hero killed him? For which side did he die? Perhaps he cast his lot quite early in the Grant Commission with the cavalry charge, the first of two alarming charging tangles of arms and men and horses, war as hell that flank impassive Grant up on his plinth. Here Schradie, maybe thinking of Bernini working on his own mirrored face for David, posed as the fallen horseman, will be crushed. Will Schradie's face distorted for effect preserve the pain in painstaking forever? I'm glad we have a photograph of Schradie safe in his studio with his two small sons, absorbed in showing them his work. His face and shadowed silhouette, hands full of clay, the light, diffused like grace throughout the room, caresses the boy's cheeks, the wrinkled suits, the spotless floor and spattered stands and tables, the dabbled clay around the looming model of another union general on his horse. In linen smock, his second skin. Here was an experience that, you know, I love in poetry. It's like, I read this poem, you know, enough times to not blow it too badly reading it, but just re- you know reading this time, I picked up on something that connected to things in my mind. Um, and I'm going to um, refrain from asking Meredith, if this is what she intended. But there's a line that says, some sponsors want a symbol, not, a life, but sculptors love a complicated man. And it was a, a, a very notable event when um, Emily Wilson's um, Odyssey uh, translation came out a couple of years ago, that that first line that is, you know, poets voice said, how do, you, how do you describe Ulysses? And she said, described him as a complicated man. Mm-hmm. And when she did it, it reminded me of uh, Isaac Hayes's Shaft, theme from Shaft, my favorite line of which is, He's a complicated man.
3: <laughs> like Maybe subconsciously,
4: but. No, so I think there's something to the yeah. complicated man.
3: Wonderful. <laughs> I'm so glad you can get all these resonances going in your head.
0: Right on. You see, this cat's as a bad
3: mother. A mother. What I'm talking about, yeah? Sharon. <laughs> Such a complicated man,
0: but no one understands him but his woman. John I had just one last question before we finish up here, and that is: what is the effort that it takes to do art?
4: <laughs> um, the effort is to um, resist satisfaction. <laughs> That's a real struggle. You know, to, to go back to something that they've thought was finished, and to also know when it's finished and stop doing that. The technical stuff is very important, but it doesn't interest me. When you talk about effort, it's a matter to me of decision-making. And even that is too cerebral. I mean, but effort implies that. The effort part to me is um, that form of control process of creative destruction where you're um, scraping off and putting back, uh, looking at what you thought was done um, and pinning over it or scraping back or looking at the poem that you've written and realize that it's actually a sistina and not a villanelle uh, if it gets that drastic. Um, And and not worry about what you destroy along the way um, because I imagine this must happen much more often in sculpture then maybe you know that might be the one thing about my painting this like sculpture but the scraping off and throwing it back on that in and of itself isn't the effort i'm talking about it's the um the knowing when to do it and not stopping yourself or stopping yourself depending on which ought to happen and and that that ought to happen almost naturally without a whole lot of thought but there is thought to it
3: the effort is is very joyful but It's also important and very difficult to forgive yourself for not being able to do the thing you wanted to do, that you hoped you were doing. And when you see it a week later or you read it a week later, you see that it's something else entirely and you just have to live with that. That was the best you could do. Or you go back in and try to do better. Um, That's hard. But the work itself is is full of joy and fascination and refreshment, I would say, no matter how much stress there is or how difficult, it really is a great work to do.
0: And thank you, Meredith Bergman and Rick Mullen. Thank poet you. and sculptor and thank poet and much. painter. This has been a whole lot of fun.
2: This is Poetry, What Is It Good For? on Bar Crawl Radio Podcast. We've been having a lively discussion with sculptor and poet Meredith Bergman and poet and painter Rick Mullen. We want to thank our co-host on this poetry discussion program, Chris Brandt.
0: And thanks to composer Tim Goplerud for lending us his dancing camel to introduce and close Poetry, What Is It Good For? You can contact Rebecca and Chris and myself, Alan, at barcrawlradio at gmail.com. That's one word, barcrawlradio at gmail.com.